Thank you to AJ for putting that video together uh, that will set the tone for our Advent sermons in the next several weeks, giving you uh, in a couple minutes, what is Advent? Why do we care about it? Why is it something that we observe year in and year out leading up to Christmas? And as the video mentioned, each of our Advent sermons uh, leading up through Christmas Eve will be starting in the book of Isaiah. And then from there, they will jump to the Christmas narratives in the Gospels. And if you know the book of Isaiah, Old Testament prophetic book, it's a long book, 66 chapters. It's a grueling book in many areas to work through. And yet it has some of the most explicit prophecies to the arrival and promise of the Messiah, written 800 years before the Messiah would come. So some people uh, even refer to Isaiah as the, quote, prophet of Christmas. And, and the first prophecy we'll look at is probably the most famous one. If you have a church background, you've heard this around this time of year, year in, year out, as long as you can remember. It's um, probably the most well-known passage that looks ahead to the birth of Jesus Christ. And it comes in Isaiah 7, and here is the line, here is the prophecy, Behold! The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Maybe you've noticed that theme even running through our worship this morning. Emmanuel, this name, Christmas name, Advent name. What's it mean, though? Because while it's a famous verse, you know what I think we rarely know. We know where it kind of gets fulfilled in the Christmas story. But what was happening in Isaiah 7 that that line came across? What was happening in the nation of Israel that that line had any whatsoever? What did it mean for them? Oftentimes we don't hear about that side of it. And, and there's a very distinct reason why it was there. Very distinct reason why Matthew took it and quoted it in his gospel. It's the reason why, again, many of our songs around this time of year include the references to the name Emmanuel. And there's a reason why the promise of Emmanuel is so important in your life today. So that's what we're after this morning. We're going to dig into Isaiah 7 and see what brought this prophecy about. And Isaiah is a, is a prophet. So if you're not familiar with the Bible or kind of a church history or Israel's history, um, Isaiah is a man that God raised up and chose to proclaim his word to the nation of Israel. That Isaiah would kind of be his mouthpiece. And again, uh, Isaiah started his ministry in 790 B.C. The chapter just before the one that we are going to be reading from this morning, Isaiah 6, um, is the famous call of Isaiah. It's a scene where, where he sees the Lord on the throne, high and lifted up, and he's not just pumped about that, he's actually terrified. And his immediate thought is, I can't see this and live, and I'm about to die. And in that moment, his angels come and say, no, your sin has been atoned for, you have been forgiven. It's a very dramatic scene that spotlights God's grace and mercy. Isaiah, it's nothing that you've done, you didn't just impress God, God chose to atone for your sin. And then God, after that moment, um, kind of says, who, who will I send? Who will I send to my people to speak to my people? And Isaiah, having just received the grace, the saving grace of God, is all pumped up, and he goes famously, here I am, send me. And then a little bit after that, Isaiah, again, still all amped up, goes, where are we going? What do you want me to do? I'll do anything. Let's go, God. Like, well, let's, let's do this. And, and God answers him and says, um, all right, brother, you're going to proclaim my word to a people. And listen, they're not going to listen to you. In fact, 
your message will harden their hearts even more, will push them further into disobedience, and then I'm going to send the whole nation into exile because of their disobedience. Isaiah hears that and paraphrasing here goes, um, excuse me, what? <laughs> I thought we were going to, I thought this was going to be big. I mean, like who, like, who wants that ministry? You know, who, who wants to be the pastor who gets called to go to a 5,000 person mega church and say, you were going to faithfully preach the gospel and you're going to whittle that church down to 50 and be the one who closes its doors? Who, who wants it? You want that? Is that why all our men in seminary across the country are thinking about ministry that they are craving? And yet it's a sneaky kind of smart move by God. Like let the reader understand. Always get the volunteer first and then give them the job. Like in reading this, it dawned on me that like Rochelle implements Isaiah 6 strategy in our home, okay? And she's just smart. She's smarter than I am. Well, she'll walk into a room and be like, all right, mommy needs two special helpers. And we got the four-year-old and the two-year-old. Like, they hear that and they're like, me, me, here I am, send me, right? Like they, well, whatever you want me to do. And she'll be like, all right, it's a tough decision, but I'll let you both be my special helper today. Um, here's what we're going to do. You see this toy room? It's a mess. We're going to clean the toy room real fast, 10 minutes, and we're going to go eat dinner. And they're like, all right, let's go. And, 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 and it works. And I go in, I go, Kate and Brent, toy room's a mess, let's go. Like, let's clean this up. And it's like, no, no thank you. So she is just like, get the volunteer first. Get them excited first and then give them the job. Just let the reader understand. That's for free. It's not even a part of the sermon. But Isaiah while, to his credit, does not understand this mission. It doesn't make sense to him in the moment, but he's faithful in his obedience to God's call on his life. And from there, we get to Isaiah 7, and this is like his first mission, his first call to action. And I want to take the time to set up the context for what is happening in Israel during this time, because it's going to help us understand when we read that famous prophecy, what kind of world is he speaking into? And to put it plainly, Israel was a mess. And, and so what is the promise of this birth of a baby boy? Why was it significant back 800 B.C.? So quick history of Israel. You had King David. Everyone knows King David. David and Goliath. He becomes king. God's kind of first chosen king that he wanted on the throne. This is about 1,000 B.C. David had his issues but was pretty much a good king. And, and he was a war hero. And so he expanded Israel's territory, expanded their land, rooted out some enemies, um, set, unified all the 12 tribes of Israel, established Jerusalem as the capital, the city on a hill. David's son is King Solomon. King Solomon, pretty good king. Had a real good run with a crash landing. We'll put it that way. But among the really good things Solomon did in this time of peace and prosperity, of real wealth and building of wealth within um, Israel, is he builds the permanent structure of the temple. It's a big deal in the Old Testament that this is the moment where it happens. This permanent place where God's glory would dwell. And then Solomon dies. And again, due to some of his own errors that he made in his life, specifically his relational life, his sons take over, and to put it plainly, all hell breaks loose. There becomes an intense rivalry for the throne amongst um, his sons, and the nation splits into two. You have a north, and then you have a south. So the northern kingdom contains ten of the original twelve tribes, and they retain the name Israel, 
And then the southern kingdom contains the remaining two tribes, and they go by the name Judah. So now you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and they, were, they go from becoming a unified nation to really just hating each other. And their split was not a peaceful one. They often would fight against one another in this region. And then looking beyond the land of Israel and Judah, you had all these little kingdoms in first century Palestine, like Syria and Edom and some others. And I want to throw a map up here because in the Middle East at this time, um, go ahead and get the map up there, um, you have Assyria. You see Assyria kind of top, middle, right. That's the big dog in the area right now. They have the biggest region, the most powerful army, and Assyria is on a mission to go conquer Egypt, which is the other big fish in the pond. Egypt, you can see it just in the bottom left. They have the um, very fertile Nile River. So the king of Assyria goes, I'm the big fish. I got to take out the other big fish. And what happens, what has to happen in order for him to get to Egypt? You see all those little nations in between. Syria, Israel, Judah. And so the king of Syria isn't really after them. He's after Egypt, but he's got to scoop up all these little guys on the way to strengthen his army and then go overtake Egypt. And so that's the situation as we're heading into Isaiah 7. So you have all these small nations in between. They're enemies, they hate each other, but they realize we kind of need to band together to fight off Assyria. And so between the two, the king of Israel, wicked king, and then the king of Syria, a wicked king, they are approaching Judah, who's under King Ahaz, and they're saying, we got to overtake Judah. Put a puppet leader in place, so that we can take their forces, strengthen our defense to go against Assyria. You tracking? That is where we're at. That is the context for what we're about to read in Isaiah 7. So with that set up, let's go ahead and open God's word. This is Isaiah 7. We're going to start with verses 1 through 9. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, King of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Ramalia. There's going to be a lot of names here, bear with me. Ramalia the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. You and Shear Jeshub, your son, and at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Ramalia, because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Here's the last phrase, listen deep. If you are not firm in faith... You will not be firm at all. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. 
It's surrounded by these two armies. And King Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, verse 2, was shaking as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I love while reading this, like we still use this phrase in our like, language today, like somebody is shook. You ever hear that? Like, what's it mean when someone is shook? Like, they are just, they are so afraid. They are so uh, just flustered. They don't know what to do with it because they're in a situation they feel like they cannot get out of. Ahaz was shook. And Isaiah's first words, I love them. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Similar to what the angels had to tell Isaiah when he was shook in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord. And his message is this, don't let these worldly armies scare you, these smoldering stumps, if you need something to call somebody else this week, all right, there you go, Isaiah 7, these, these smoldering stumps, that, because the Lord shall not let your destruction come to pass, but he gives them a condition, did you see it at the very end? He says, it will not come to pass, but the most important part of that, that leads to the Christmas prophecy that we'll read in a moment, if you are not firm in faith. You will not be firm at all. You see the play on words there? You must be firm in faith if you want to be firm at all. No faith, no firm. Unbelief leads to instability. Instability leads to chaos. Chaos leads to defeat. And defeat leads to a lack of joy. You know, last week we were in Psalm 98 and we saw the connection between joy and worship. This morning, we're going to see the connection between joy and faith. So tuck this in the back of your minds. Joy in God's people is strongest when they walk the pathway of faithful obedience. And so before we even move on to see the prophecy in its context, here's a question that I want you to be thinking about as we walk through the rest of this text. What's testing your faith right now? What's the biggest threat to you having faith in God or growing in that faith? Is it a specific situation in your life that you are facing right now? Is it a relationship with a family member, uh, a friend, maybe even a fellow church member? Is it the situation as you look at the big picture of our divisive country right now and you're just saying, this is just shaking my faith, my faith in God because look how chaotic it is out there. Is it a certain belief or doctrinal position in the Bible and, and you can't shake it and you're lying in bed at night wondering, is this really true? And something has happened in your life and you're starting to see some things and some claims of the Bible have started to come into question. Any one of those is common. And my guess is at some point, if we live long enough, you're going to go through all of them. And so here's my encouragement up front. You don't need to feel ashamed about that. You don't need to feel ashamed that there's some doubt creeping in that's testing your faith. But we do need to have the tools to persevere in faithful obedience in a way that brings sustains true joy. So let's go ahead and find where this prophecy is. Isaiah 7, we'll pick it up in verse 10 and go to verse 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, this is Isaiah now speaking, 
Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, here it is, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Three questions that we're going to answer this morning for the rest of our time. And we're going to start in Isaiah 7, it will move us to Matthew 1, and then we'll end in our own lives and our own hearts. First question, what did the name mean to King Ahaz? What did this name Emmanuel mean to King Ahaz? So did you see what happened? The Lord, he wanted to bolster Ahaz's faith. Ahaz has not been uh, too faithful to the Lord up to this point, and yet in his grace, God comes to Ahaz as he's surrounded by his enemies, and he gives him a blank check. Ask a sign of me. It could be as high as the heavens. It could be as deep as your mind can go. Ask me any sign, and I will give it to you. Like, think about that. The God of the universe just came to a man and said, name it, and I'll show you. Like, how many of us would kill for that offer right now? Like, we're always looking for signs, man. And here he is, blank check, whatever you want. And here, surrounded by armies, desperate situation, Ahaz gets this offer, and what does he do? He punts, completely blows it. And he does so by kind of giving this fake humility, saying, no, I won't ask for that. I won't put the Lord to the test. Sounds very humble of you, Ahaz. I won't bother God with that. No need, no need. But but that response is not exposing strong faith. It actually exposes the exact opposite. Exposes his lack of faith. You see, Ahaz did not trust in God. He got himself into a situation where he thought, God, this is too big for you. This is too desperate. The armies are here as we speak. And he refuses to trust in the power of faith. Ahaz has tragically already made up his mind, and we will find out later in this chapter, if we were to keep reading, that he's already decided his only way out is to make an alliance with Assyria with the big dog himself. God, I cannot submit to you. I have to submit to him. And Isaiah hears this. And and he just says, brother, like, isn't it enough that you're wearying me? But you are going to weary God himself, his own patience, his own mercy. You're given a blank check. Like, he is floored that Ahaz just takes a hard pass at God's offer. And then almost out of frustration is the way I'm reading it, but kind of finality, Isaiah just goes, all right, the Lord then will give you a sign himself. And then, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a prophecy that, as we know, would ultimately be fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's not that simplistic. There's more to say about that. Many times, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when you hear a prophecy, um, you have what theologians call a near-view, far-view fulfillment, where there is an immediate fulfillment to the current situation that's not just a throwaway line so that Matthew could pick it up hundreds of years later, that that meant something in the current situation that would be a precursor, that would be kind of a shadow to the ultimate fulfillment that would be sometime in the future. In this case, again, if we were to keep reading the following verses and then into chapter 8, 
it seems clear that there was a boy born in Judah named Emmanuel, right in this time period. A boy who would grow up to discern good and evil. A boy who would grow up to see the enemy destroyed, the immediate enemy being these wicked kings of Assyria, of Israel and Syria, who the king of Assyria will eventually come and dismantle. But the point is, and the point for us this morning, is that Ahaz, the king of Judah, responded to the promise of Emmanuel to deliver him from his enemy with fear over faith. His fear overcame his faith. And again, not only will he not submit to God, but as you read through Isaiah, he will eventually get in front of the king of Assyria and say, I am your servant. And he would lead Judah into a serving Assyria's God in order to appease him. He would actually go to the temple that, um, that Solomon built and he would shut its doors and say, see Assyria, we're all in with you. Your gods, bring them. Please spare us. And as the long book of Isaiah will unveil later on, this plan will backfire because of course it will. And it will lead to the almost near total destruction of Judah at the hands of a king that he was trying to make a deal with. Ahaz chose fear over faith, despite the promise of Emmanuel. And from that, joy did not increase like he thought it would. Chaos did. Because you see, unbelief leads to instability. Instability leads to chaos. Chaos leads to defeat, which leads to the ultimate removal of joy. Second question. So what did this name mean to Joseph and Mary? So this obscure prophecy given to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, a prophecy he would not listen to, does not get spoken of again in the scriptures until Matthew 1, almost 800 years later. When it comes up again, and here's a passage you're more familiar with, but let's read it. Matthew chapter 1, you can follow on the screen, or else it's page 807 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read verses 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph and Mary are given the same promise and the same sign as King Ahaz. That God will deliver his people. And the sign will be the birth of a son. But it's on a condition that they have faith in a difficult situation. 
there's a direct correlation, you see, between joy and faith. And where faith is strong in God's people, joy flows. The angel proclaims God's word to Joseph, just as Isaiah proclaimed God's word to Ahaz. A sign will be given to you in the birth of the son. This time, it's the final fulfillment of that prophecy in the birth of Jesus Christ. A virgin shall conceive. They shall call his name Emmanuel. A lot of names given to Jesus. That name is not literally Emmanuel, but the meaning of the name will be behind Jesus, meaning God with us. So you see, the connection to Isaiah 7 is not just that a boy was born the connection is also to see what's Joseph going to do? Will Joseph make the same fatal mistake as Ahaz and choose fear over faith in a desperate situation or will he choose faith over fear? When Ahaz first heard it, he was already thinking about teaming up with Assyria and now Joseph was already considering divorcing Mary quietly when he was given the same promise. So what's he going to do? By God's grace, we read verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Faith over fear. A glorious reversal of Isaiah chapter 7. Faithful obedience to God's word by clinging to God's promise. And with it, the joy of deliverance. Not only for the sins of his own life and his future wife Mary, but for anyone who would put their faith in Jesus. Because responding to God's grace as he reveals things to us in faith leads to joy. Joy unspeakable, joy eternal, the kind of joy that is not possible outside faith in Jesus Christ. And now it's important to continually be reminded. I'm always wanting to remind myself, I always want to remind this church that a life of faithful joy does not equate to a comfortable, stress-free life. We know that. We need to know that. Because if you were to just go out on the street and you just say, hey, describe a joyful life for me to anybody you see, what are some of the things you'd start to think you know, to hear. As somebody says, hey, this is my vision of a joyful life. What are the things you're going to hear? You're going to hear a lot of comfort. You're going to hear a lot of prosperity. You're going to hear of things are easy. I'm getting victories wherever I go, that that is what increases joy. Easy path. But when Joseph and Mary obeyed in faithfulness, what they experienced from that moment, from verse 24, was not easy. They went a trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem while very pregnant, and there was no Uber chariots in the first century. All right, they were walking that thing, and it was not like down the road, city to city. Like, I'm nervous getting this girl to the valley in a week, all right? Like, I'm, I, I can just roll her down, and like, she'll get there. But like, making a traveling trip to have to go give birth, and not only they get there, and there's no room for them. And so they have to end up in a stable, and, and Joseph has to deliver himself. Again, terrified. This is taking on new meaning for me, and I'm not happy about it. <laughs> and then not only that, but after this baby is born healthy, and these people start coming in saying, we've heard about him, we've followed this star, they get news that the king of that region wants their baby killed. 
And so he has to take this newborn or maybe toddler and his wife and go down and be refugees in Egypt. And then after that, come back to Nazareth and try and reestablish a life. Like, does that sound easy to you? Does that sound stress-free and joyful life and prosperity? That is hard. And that is the pathway of faithful obedience. And it is for all joy that they did it. Not only that, but you notice as you read through the Gospels, you stop hearing about Joseph. The last time we hear about him is in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was 12 years old and they lost him at the temple in Jerusalem. After that, radio silence. We get a lot of mentions of his mother Mary. We get mentions of his siblings during his earthly ministry, but no Joseph. So it's possible, even probable, that he passed before Jesus began his earthly ministry that led to the cross. So this whole life of faithful obedience, living in total obscurity, raising this son, he does not even get to see the final fulfillment of it all, but he was faithful to the end and joyfully forgiven and saved by the son he raised by having faith over fear. So it leads us to the third question. We saw Isaiah 7. We saw Matthew 1. So what does this name Emmanuel mean to you? When it comes to the most important decision of what or who you will put your ultimate faith in, as well as the dozens of decisions the people of God make each and every day, come down to this. Will we choose faith or fear? To put it another way, I say this as often as I can, everyone in this world puts their faith in something. There is no such thing as having faith. It takes faith to believe in nothing, just like it takes faith to believe in God. So the question is not if you will have faith. The question is not if you'll wake up seeking your own joy. That's another thing we all do regardless of what you believe. We all wake up and we want to be joyful. And every decision we make, in a sense, has a desire that it will increase joy in our life based upon this decision. Little decisions, big decisions. So we all will have faith and we all want joy. The question is, who are we going to put our faith in? King Ahaz pursued his own joy when he put his faith in the king of Assyria and denied God. Joseph and Mary pursued their own joy when they put their faith in God. So when that same name, Emmanuel, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, gets placed before you, will you believe in faith? Or will you look elsewhere out of fear that he can't deliver? So to be clear, here's what I believe, here's what we believe at Grace Church. Believing in Jesus is both a one-time decision and a daily decision. All right, so let me unpack that. Uh, we believe that salvation, that being justified and forgiven of your sin, happens immediately the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a decision. Let me plead with you. That's not a, something to be vague with. It's not that it's something time, yeah, I think I believe because I do these things. That is a decision. I repent of my sin. I believe in the life and death of resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is my Savior. 
And at that moment, the Bible is clear that you are fully saved, fully cleansed, forgiven forever. But the decision to follow Christ is a daily one that we all need to make. We all see in the Old Testament that the people of God would cry out to God and get delivered. And then what happened every single time? They would just drift away. And they would just drift away. And as things got easier, they lost their need for God. And then they get real jammed up again. They go, God, we need you to deliver. And then what happens? They get delivered and then they just drift away. The tendency for all of God's people is to drift away after we've been delivered. Which is why Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Like, we hear that statement, and we have a very romanticized view of the cross because of what we know it accomplished. You know what that meant in the first century when he's telling his people? That was a sign of death. That was a brutal sign of execution. And he's telling his followers, if you want to follow me, take up your execution cross and follow me every single day. What? That sound like joy to you? And yet, that is why, through the Holy Spirit, we are given the opportunity in faithful obedience to go, this doesn't make sense, but it's for all joy that I'm going to follow this path. And we face decisions, those of us who are believers, big and small, every single day. And we need to decide daily whether are we going to follow Jesus and his word in faith, or or we can go pursue something else out of fear. Because here's the common ground we all have in, with Ahaz and Joseph. Life is lived in the present moment without the benefit of knowing everything about the big picture. Like how often do we say, how often do we hear people say um, that I, I want to wait until I have all the information before I make a decision? And, and, and I'm going to wait until I'm financially secure and have everything in order before I'm going to consider getting married. Or I'm going to wait until I have full assurance of what's going to happen down the road until I decide if I'm going to take this job or if I'm going to date this girl or if I'm going to marry this guy or if I'm going to move to this place or if I'm going to share my faith with my neighbor. I need to know everything about what's going to happen before I decide in the present. And we are fooling ourselves because nobody sees the big picture. No one except God himself. The reality is we have a limited amount of information with a whole lot of uncertainty and we still need to make decisions. And let's be honest, a non-decision is very much a decision, isn't it? So this is what life is and these are the moments that we live in. We make decisions in the present without knowing everything there is to know or how it will turn out. And that is where faith is needed. Because his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. Another line that comes from the book of Isaiah. In fact, if we read our Bible often enough, we will see God's ways and God's thoughts are often far wilder and stranger than we would ever think. Like everyone in Israel thought that God would send a Messiah as a warlord, as somebody who would free them from Rome. Nobody in their right mind could have thought that God would come himself by sending his own son to die on a cross. That is far wilder than anybody could have ever imagined. 
that the divine, eternal son would be born into a middle to low class Jewish family and and live in complete obscurity for the first 30 years of his life. And so, in our lives, when we are in these present moments, that we tend to think, man, this doesn't make sense. You ever think that? God, this doesn't make sense, the situation that I'm in. I don't deserve this. I did nothing to deserve this and and be so jammed up like I am or be in this crossroads like I am or being treated like I am. God, this world doesn't make sense out there. I'm scrolling through Twitter and I'm watching the 6 o'clock news and that looks like chaos. Where are you? It looks like destruction. It looks like defeat. And so the question is, when our faith is shaken, like King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, when our faith is shaken, like Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, when we feel unstable and the future looks untenable, with armies that surround us, with a lifetime of shame and dishonor in, in, in going forward with the marriage before him, and when we are in our present moments, we have a choice, every one of us, between fear and Who will we put our trust in? And the Bible tells us, and I can tell you with certainty, that following the promises of the world will lead to destruction and death. But following the promises of God leads to life and joy. Like true joy. Everlasting joy. And it is always found on the pathway of faithful obedience to God's word. The core of faith is trust and the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, God for us. Even when we don't know the why, even we don't know the how or the when, we put our full trust in the who. I mentioned earlier that in life we're always kind of looking for a sign when we're waiting for something. Lord, just show me a sign. I'm looking, I'm available, a text message would be nice. Something in the clouds, I could work with that, but I need a sign. Make it clear. It's not clear right now. And listen, I'm not against the belief that God does reveal himself in lots of different ways, and he gives us wisdom and discernment in the hundreds of decisions we make year in and year out. But hear me, for all the things we don't know, for all the decisions that the Bible does not provide a clear answer to what you should do, the Bible is continually telling us to gaze upon and cling to what we do know. And the sign we needed most, hear me, the sign we needed most for a life of joy and faith is the one we've received in the birth of Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin, named Emmanuel, who will save people from their sins. The God who is with us. And as we trust in that, we can be clear that the more we dig into that promise, the more that God will unveil his wisdom and discernment on the areas that are not so clear in our life. There's an author, Trillia Newbell. Um, she wrote a book called Fear and Faith. And the women in our church actually did a study on this, I think about a year and a half ago. And here's my favorite quote from her book. Put this on your Christmas list. Fear and Faith, Trillia Newbell. She says, this isn't let go and let God. It's let go, run hard toward your Savior, and learn to trust God. And as you live your life, 
in faithful obedience, here's what you'll find. Here's what men and women found all across the scriptures, that the most joyful moments come on the heels of when someone had to display faith in a hard situation with an unknown future. Like, isn't that true? Just reflect on your own life and your own experience. Can't you look back and say, some of the most joyful moments I've had in God come on the heels of the times I had to cling to him in faith in a really hard season because joy is not associated with easy. Real joy, deep joy, is associated with difficult situations that require deep faith. So church, as we close, as we prepare our hearts to take communion together this morning in this Advent season, let go of your fear. Run hard toward your Savior and learn to trust Him. And it may be a slow process of learning, but keep moving forward and trust in the slow work of God while we walk on the pathway of obedience. People will see that. People will see your joy, your unshakable joy in life in all circumstances. And you know what they will see? They will see you, but they'll be pointed to something bigger, something deeper, something so joyful that it must have not come from this world, but it came to this world, and it came through a virgin birth, and it came through a son, and his name is Emmanuel. Let's pray.